But if you brought a Bible with you this morning, would you pull it out and just hold it up in the air, just like this? We are going to look at some things this morning right out of your Bibles, and I hope that you will turn to all the passages with me. It is imperative that you believe what we will be studying today. It is imperative for your salvation that you trust what we're going to look at. So we're going to pray that God will give us great understanding and great insight as we look at his word. Let's pray together. Keep your Bible up in the air. Father in heaven, we hold these Bibles up as a declaration to you that we believe what's written here. We hold them up as a declaration to those around us that we believe what's written here. We believe your word and we live by it. We hold it up as a declaration to ourselves that we believe what is written in this book. They're your words, Father. And they were inspired by your spirit. And they have changed our lives as they have pointed us over and over and over again to you. What we're asking this morning is that you do it once again. Using your words, show us who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Swindoll tells this story. It's a pretty good one. Miss Thompson, I'm assuming this came from his church in California, but he said Miss Thompson had a daunting task placed in front of her. She was the Sunday school teacher for first and second graders, and their church was teaching all of the same curriculum throughout all of the ages, <clears throat> meaning all of the ages within the church, not all the ages, all the ages of those that were going to Sunday school in their church. On one particular week, she had to teach the Trinity to a bunch of first and second graders. That is a huge task to adults. It's even bigger to try to get eight and nine-year-olds to understand this biblical concept. So she racked her brain trying to come up with an idea of how best to do that so that they could understand this idea, foundational idea of the Trinity. She came up with a pretty good idea. She showed up that Sunday morning carrying with her a pretzel that looked just like this. She stood up in front of the class holding that pretzel. looks good, doesn't it? If you knew it was filled with cheese, it would look even better. She stood up in front of the class. They're all sitting down on the floor, and she's got her pretzel up there, and she just jumps into the lesson. She said, this is one continuous piece of dough artistically braided together with three distinct holes. It's just like the Trinity. Then she said, those three holes each represent a different person within the Trinity. This one over here, this one represents the Father. And she moved on to this one. She said, this one represents the Son. And this one represents the Holy Spirit. She circled back on her idea and she said, Now kids, I want you to think of it like this. This one right here, this is God the Father. And this one is Jesus the Son. And this one down here at the bottom, this one is the Holy Spirit. And they're all bound together. Isn't that just wonderful? And all the kids said, yeah. Their attention was just raptured on her. There was no distracting them. So she went through it again. This is God the Father. And this is Jesus the Son. This one down here, this is the Holy Spirit. Then she had them repeat after her that same thing. This is God the Father. This is Jesus the Son. This is the Holy Spirit. Let's all try it together. Are you ready? This is God the Father. This is Jesus the Son. And this is the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over and over again, Miss Thompson did that same thing with those kids. She knew that she had driven the point home, and they all had it. So she decided to test it. She called little Johnny up off the front row to stand up in the front with her, handed little Johnny the pretzel and said, now, Johnny, walk us through all of this so that everybody will see how well you understand this. And Johnny didn't really miss a beat on that first one. He said, this one right here, this one's God the Father. Big smile on his face, proud of himself. Moved over to this one. He said, this one, this one's Jesus the Son. And then he got in trouble. 
he got down here to this bottom one, and he just kind of stuttered and stammered around. And this one, this one, this one, well, that's the holy smoke. That's, that's just all he could come up with. That's the holy smoke, this one down here. Now, we can all smile and laugh at stories like that, and you think of the innocence of children and the naivety of the kids when they're trying to describe things like that. But the truth of the matter is, if we were to ask anybody sitting in this room to come stand in front of the church and, and describe the Trinity and how it all works and how one Godhead can be broken into three entities but still combined into one, the majority of people in this room would find themselves somewhat exasperated as well. You may get down to that bottom one and say, holy smoke, I, I don't know what else to say. You would give it your best, but you just wouldn't know what to say. We could come up with all kinds of different ways to illustrate this idea, just like Miss Thompson did with the pretzel. That's a, that's a wonderful illustration, beautiful illustration of how it works. There are other object lessons just like that, like the egg. You have the shell, and inside you have the yolk, and you have the white, and there's the trinity. I've never really cared much for that one. You have the illustration of a person who is a son and a father and a husband, a man that serves in all three of those roles combined into one individual, but they have three distinct jobs. That's a different way to do it. Some people have tried to describe the Trinity using their fingers. Others have come up with some unique illustrations and object lessons. We could use every one of them, and I would venture a guess that when we were finished, we would still have a lot of people that were confused on the idea of the Trinity. It's hard for people to understand. It really is. But it matters. It matters a great deal. I said last week, and I've said it before, this is not mine. It comes from different scholars and theologians, but it is so true. If you try to explain the Trinity, you may well lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. That's how important this idea is. So I want us to explore it a little bit this morning. I'm going to show you as we get started three different ways that you can trust the Trinity. Three different types of teaching from three different sources. We're going to start with the Old Testament. Do you realize that the idea of the Trinity shows up in the Old Testament? A lot of people believe it's a New Testament idea, but it really does start in the Old Testament. Now, in order to lay the foundation, you have to know this. The word Trinity does not exist in the Bible. You cannot find that. But you find the idea and the teaching of the Trinity all the way through Scripture, beginning with the Old Testament. Now, if you were in Sunday school with us this past summer, you heard me talk about a hermeneutic law called the Law of First Mention. The Law of First Mention is a wonderful tool to use when you are studying any biblical subject. doesn't matter what it is. If you get a little bit confused on that subject, then you apply this law to it in your biblical studies, and it'll help explain it. Law of First Mention says that you go to the very first place that that idea is found in the Bible, and from there, you chase it all the different directions. The Law of First Mention is an incredibly important Bible study tool. With the Trinity, it works beautifully. Let me show you what I mean. If we're going to open our Bibles to the first place that the Trinity appears in Scripture, we're going to go to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what we read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, the Trinity just appeared right there. Hopefully, you saw it. The first appearance we get comes in the form of just a two-letter word. What was that? 
us. Let us make man in our own image. There are a lot of people, have been for century after century, a lot of people that have tried to distort that verse because it's hard to understand in light of the Trinity. So here's what they do with that. They would teach that when God said, let us make man in our image, that he was speaking to the angels. So we are created not only in the image of God, but also in the image of the angels. Now, here's the problem with that. I know you people. You are not angelic. So we'll just wipe that idea out of there. What he was really saying, God the Father was saying to God the Son and God the Spirit, let us make man in our image. You are created in the image of the Trinity. You are created in the image of all three. Let us make man in our image. Now, the Old Testament doesn't stop there. There are other places that we find the Trinity appearing. We're still in the book of Genesis. Let's go over to the 11th chapter. Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Now, this is speaking about the Tower of Babel, and most of you are familiar with that story. So in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, we hear this. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Again, the Trinity shows up in the form of a two-letter word, which is us. What you find all through the Old Testament, and this is not the only place that the Old Testament speaks to the idea of the Trinity. It also appears in the book of Deuteronomy. The Trinity appears in the book of Psalms. The Trinity appears in the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, and also briefly in the book of Proverbs. In almost every one of those situations, he comes out just like this. It's very conversational. Let us make man in our image. Come, let us go down and we'll confuse their language. It's a conversation happening between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's pretty cool to study the Trinity in the Old Testament and discover nothing more than that. The conversational relationship that the three of them have, yet they are still representative of the one Godhead, the triune Godhead. By the time we get to the New Testament, though, things become a lot more academic. They seem to have changed. There may well be a reason for that, but let me show it to you first in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to apply the law of first mention again, this time to the New Testament. We're going to look at the first place that the Trinity shows up, and we don't have to get any further into the the New Testament than the first book. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, What we have discovered in the Trinity by the time we get to the Gospel of Matthew is a much more academic approach. We've moved from the conversational and relational into the academic. All three people or persons of the Godhead just appeared in this passage. We have Jesus going to be baptized. We have the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and we have God speaking from heaven. There's all three people of the Trinity, but they're broken down into individuals. As we continue on through the New Testament, we see that same thing. By the way, the Holy Spirit shows up for the first time in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. 
the Holy Spirit shows up when the angels come to speak to Joseph and Mary and they make the promise that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and she will get pregnant and give birth to a son. That's the first place the Holy Spirit shows up. See how the law of first mention works? From there, you just chase all these different rabbits to these different ends. You can study the Trinity. You can study the Holy Spirit. You can study any number of different things just by utilizing the law of first mention and seeing how far you can go. But in the book of Matthew, we get this academic approach where all three of the different persons of the Godhead are broken down. By Matthew 28, we see him again. Let's go there. Matthew 28, picking up in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Now there's the breakdown again, the academic breakdown. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. And it goes all the way through the Bible. It is an amazing teaching, absolute amazing teaching. Now, I promised you three sources. The first is the Old Testament. The second is the New Testament. The third is found actually in your worship folder. If you got one of these when you came in this morning, go ahead and pull that out. Your worship folder, you're handed one just as you walked in the front doors. There is an insert inside that folder that is traditionally not there. It looks just like this. There's writing on both sides. Pull that out, would you? It says at the top of one of those sides, Libby Christian Church Statement of Faith. For the longest time, our congregation did not have one of these. We didn't have a statement of faith that we could just hand to anybody. And the reason for that is really simple. We have the New Testament. That's our statement of faith. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. We just trust what the Bible says. But there have been some societal changes, some legal changes within our world that has forced us into having a statement of faith in print. So our elders spent a lot of time this summer hammering this out. They spent a lot of time getting it to a place so that if we are ever sued or taken to court, we can start with this piece of paper right here and say, this is what we believe. From there, everything else branches off of it. That's why we have it. Not because we don't trust the Bible, and you'll see that this page is full of Scripture. All of it is proven by Scripture. We have it because of the societal changes. But I want you to see the first of the 17 things listed on here. We're not going to go through them one by one. I just want you to see the first one. Underneath foundational beliefs, this is what you read. We believe in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is foundational to our foundational beliefs. That had to be called out at the beginning so that everything else could fall underneath it. This is what we believe. The Old Testament teaches the Trinity. The New Testament teaches the Trinity. And the church elders have said, we will hang our hat on that belief. We'll go down swinging in support of that belief. Even though it's hard for people to understand, it's hard for people to grasp, it is foundational to everything else. We believe in one God made up of three persons, individual persons, tied together in the triune Godhead. And I understand that that is difficult. I really do. So what I want to do is make it a little more practical. We're going to jump in 
to a passage of Scripture that helps us understand what the Trinity is doing. Let's go together to the book of 1 John. Now, there are four Johns in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the Gospel of John. Then there are three letters towards the end of the New Testament. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to go to the first letter. 1st John chapter 5. What we are about to read, even as we're trying to clear all this up, is not easy stuff in Scripture. It's what I would call the deep water. We are about to climb up on the high dive and jump into some deep water. We have just been in the wading pool. We're about to move out of that. So I know, I totally understand that what we're about to read can be very confusing to a lot of people. Hang with me, and I'm going to try my best to explain it to you because you need to see this. Before we get to the, the deep end, though, let's jump into the area where it's only about three or four feet deep. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is really fairly easy teaching. Again, this is like being in the end of the pool where it's three to four, maybe five feet deep, but your head's still above water. Easy to understand. Here's what John's saying. If you love God, do what he says. If you love God and have a relationship with him, obey him. That's the the part of the Trinity that's pretty easy for people to grasp. Just do what God says. Every parent in this room has wrestled through that at some point with your own children. If they love you, you want them to do what you have told them to do. Probably there's a number of you that have fought through the idea of first-time obedience. The first time I say it, I expect you to do it. Anybody know what I'm talking about, parents? Same thing with God. He looks at us and says, I've said it, now just do it. And it's that simple. Problem, though, comes up when man gets involved. And man's gotten involved from the very beginning. Man has created all kinds of difficult doctrines. They've created lists of things that Christians can do and things that Christians can't do. And it's become nearly impossible for people to know what came from God and what came from man. And they have muddied up the water so much so that it seems like the exact opposite of what John has said is the truth. Not that Jesus' burden is light, but that it's heavy. That he's placed a huge burden on you that you really can't even stand up underneath. But that's not true. And remember, that kind of stuff's been going on from the very beginning of the church. So let me show you how the apostles dealt with it. We'll go to the book of Acts together. Acts chapter 15. There are a group of people that had come into the church called Judaizers. They were trying to convince the Gentiles that they had to live by the Old Testament law as well as grace. So the apostles got involved, and this is what they said. This is Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. 
We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Now that's the burden the apostles put on the new church. Instead of a long list of do's and don'ts, particularly the don'ts, they just said it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that you avoid these things. The rest of it lives under grace and mercy. Farewell. That's the burden of God. Now when man gets involved, that gets totally, totally distorted. So John says, listen to God. Don't pay attention to man. Listen to God and do what he says. Just as simple as that. If you want the relationship, listen to what he says and do it. And he stops there. Then we move on in 1 John into what really becomes the deep water. It's the the validity, the power of the Spirit validating what John has just said. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to go back to 1 John chapter 5. This is where the swimming gets a little more interesting, so you've got to hang with me. Picking up in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you, if you were asked to explain that passage, would have no problem with it whatsoever? Not very many of you. This is deep water. And it is deep water of Scripture because man got involved. There were a group of people, pay close attention to this, because if you don't, it's not going to make any sense to you. There were a group of people in the early church that said that when Jesus was baptized, God's divinity came to rest on him. That's when he became the Christ. He was not the Christ, he was not the Savior, not the Messiah, until that point. They would even teach that he was not sinless until that point, the point of his baptism. And they say that because of God's words from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. At that point in their belief, the divinity of God came down from heaven and rested on Christ. They believe that it left him on the cross So when he was hanging there and Jesus said these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In their teaching, the divinity of God left Jesus and went back into heaven. So there was only a three-year period where he was actually both man and God, where he was actually the Messiah or the Savior. That's a huge problem. So John is saying that's not true at all. 
he's saying that there were three different events that give testimony to Jesus' divinity. The water at his baptism, the blood at his crucifixion, and then the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the only person that was on earth during those two events and is still on earth today. And the Spirit is testifying to what he saw in the water, the baptism, and what he saw in the blood, Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. The Spirit is giving testimony to all that he saw. But the Spirit's not the only one giving testimony to that. There were other people that were there. And all of this is in the teaching of 1 John chapter 5. You just got to peel away layer after layer after layer of this onion to see it. There was also human witnesses. At the baptism of Jesus, it was John the Baptist. He saw it. He told other people what he witnessed. At the crucifixion, there was a witness that would declare who Jesus really was. Do you know who he was? It was the centurion. The centurion, when he saw what happened after everything that had taken place, the earthquake, the graves that were opened, the rending of the veil in the temple, the hours of darkness that preceded the death of Jesus, after all of that, the centurion would make this huge declaration, surely this is the Son of God. And he told everybody about it. And since then, the Holy Spirit has been driving home their testimony time and time again in everyone's life that would ever become a believer. And those three witnesses, John the Baptist at the water, the centurion at the blood, and the Holy Spirit ever since give testimony to who Jesus Christ is. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never drawing attention to Himself. He is always drawing attention and giving attention to the Son that we might glorify Jesus and through Jesus Christ grow closer to God the Father. That's the way it works. Those are the three testimonies. Now that helps us understand a passage tucked away in the book of Deuteronomy. Pretty cool passage. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Turn there with me. Keep your finger in 1 John 5. It'll be easy to go back. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 19. Moses writes these words. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter, listen, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Now we have all those other witnesses together and the Holy Spirit wrapping it all together so that we can understand who God is. Now let me throw this caveat out there for you. This is great teaching from the Bible. All of this only makes sense to believers. It doesn't make a lick of sense to a non-believer. Neither does the Bible. The Bible doesn't make any sense to a person that does not have the Holy Spirit living within them. It only makes sense to a Spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. The things of God only make sense to a person that has the Holy Spirit. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For a person that has received Christ, for a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit, the things of God make sense. That's part of the job of the Trinity. The Spirit is directing us to Jesus, that Jesus might direct us to God. That's the way it works. That's part of their purpose. 
And there just happened to be witnesses that drive it home. Now, isn't that cool teaching? I know that you had to jump off of the high dive and swim through some deep water. Some of it might even seem shark infested. But when you understand it, that's cool teaching. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can understand the things of God. I like that an awful lot. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. Now, I really want you to listen close to what the Spirit is doing because this is the point of personal application in this message. We've been doing a lot of teaching. Now we're going to apply it. So listen to this from verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the greatest roles of the Holy Spirit is to give you confidence in your relationship with God that you may know that you have eternal life. As Satan attacks over and over and over again, he attacks in such a way to cause you to question whether you're really saved. He will attack to make you question whether you really have the Holy Spirit and whether you really have a relationship with God. He'll do it over and over and over and over again. But the power that is within you can resist those attacks. It's called the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation is different than eternal security. The doctrine of assurance of salvation teaches you that you're going to come under all these different attacks, but the Holy Spirit is going to remind you repeatedly that you are a child of God because you've been born again. Now, that's a tough statement for people to swallow as well. They hear that and they wonder, what what in the world does that mean? And if you've ever wondered what it means to be born again, know this, you're in good company. When Jesus first used that term in the New Testament, it caused people to say, what in the world are you talking about? Let me show you. John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to a very logically minded man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is just a kind of cool guy. If you are logically minded and you have struggled in your relationship with Christ, you need to follow Nicodemus through the New Testament. There are three different times that he will appear before Jesus. The first time is under the cover of darkness. He came with some questions because he just couldn't wrap his head around the things that Jesus was teaching. The second time, he stood up in defense of Christ. And the third time we see him, he was a disciple. He came to take down the body of Jesus from the cross with Joseph of Arimathea and go bury him. He made a huge declaration that he was a believer, a disciple. But it started in the most intriguing of ways, again, under the cover of darkness. John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus are talking. Verse 3, listen to the conversation. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now let's stop there for just a second. The water means your physical birth. The Spirit means your spiritual birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have two birth days. There's the day you were born. For me, that was August 24th, 1968. And then there's the day you were born again, born of the Spirit. For me, that was August 10th, 1978. 
Now, it just struck me last night as I was working my way back through the message. That means I have two birthdays. Currently, we celebrate uh, my birthday for a week at the end of August. It's the big, well, it's not even a joke. It's very serious in our home. It's Dad's birthday week. I love that week. I look forward to that week all year long. But last night, it struck me, that really needs to be stretched out three weeks. August 10th to the 24th. Baby, we will talk about this later. I am making plans for next year. You have your spiritual birthday. You have your physical birthday. It is the spiritual birthday that matters. That's the one that matters. That's when you were born again into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You were born of the Spirit. If you are a Christian today, you know what that means. You were born again. And the Holy Spirit brings testimony to it over and over and over again. You want to know how that works? Anybody want to know? Are you curious how that works? The Holy Spirit brings testimony by showing you over and over and over repeatedly the birthmarks that exist in your life. If you are a Christian, born of the Spirit, you've been born again, there are certain birthmarks that exist in your life. Now, I'm not talking about dark spots on your body. I'm not talking about moles or anything like that. I'm talking about spiritual birthmarks. I'll show you five of them. If you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write these down and the scripture behind them. All of the scripture is found in the book of 1 John. But for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of them. Go back and read them for yourself. You'll see this. These are the birthmarks of a believer. Number one, the things that matter to God will matter to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. The things that matter to God will matter to you. If you're wondering if you're a Christian, if you are wrestling with your relationship with God, start right here because this is an instrumental as well as an incremental aspect of your relationship with Christ. The things that matter to God will matter to you. At the moment you became a Christian and probably preceding you becoming a Christian, the things that mattered to God started to gain traction in your life. And after you became a Christian, they really got moving. The things that matter to God matter to you if you are a spirit-filled, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Second birthmark, sin loses its hold on you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Now, a lot of you know that this is also an incremental part of your relationship with Christ. I said a few weeks ago, if you were here, that today you may have things happening in your life that do not appear to you to be sin. But a year from now, they may very well be revealed to you as sin, and you deal with those. That's the ongoing battle that we have with the sin nature within us. But it loses its hold as we grow in our relationship with Christ. Sin is no longer the defining aspect of who you are. You don't want that to have a hold of you. You want to let it go. The third birthmark. You start caring for other believers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. What's happening in the life of other Christians becomes important to you. What's happening in the lives of those that you go to church with becomes important to you. When somebody asks you to pray for them, you really want to do it. When somebody asks you to, to walk through life with them, you want to do it. Because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the people that you're going to share eternity with and they matter to you right here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says, And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habits of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. That's the role of the church 
We're supposed to care about what's happening in the lives of other believers, and it should be important to us. It's one of the big struggles I have when people tell me, and I hear it all the time, so do you. Well, I don't go to church because I go out to the woods, and the woods is my church. Well, how in the world are you caring about other believers if you've isolated yourself in the woods? One of the birthmarks of a believer is their involvement in other believers' lives, and they're caring for other believers. That's the way it's supposed to work. You cannot isolate yourself and say that this birthmark is really taking root in your life. You have to be careful of that. Birthmark number four. You begin caring about non-believers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. When Jesus was questioned about the, the most important commandments, he said this, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. John picked up the same idea in 1 John chapter 4. We don't just love other Christians. We love other people. And it becomes evident to those that are around us. The fifth birthmark of a believer. You're an overcomer. 1 John chapter 5 verse 4. You have figured out what it means to live in the victory of relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are the birthmarks of a believer. And if you're wrestling with your salvation, your relationship with God, and you don't know whether you're saved, start right here and trust the Holy Spirit as He leads you through each one of these things. And you ask yourself, do the things of God matter to me? Has sin lost its hold on me? Do I care about other believers and am I involved in their lives? Do I care about non-believers and have I discovered victory? And if you come up against one of those that you cannot answer in the positive, stop right there and then begin working on that and bringing that birthmark out so that it becomes evident not just to you but to other people as well. So we wrap this up. I want to show you why that matters. Go back to the book of Acts with me. We're going to leave those up. Some of you are still writing. We'll leave those up there. Go back to the book of Acts, chapter 19. I'm going to ask Matt Warner and Brian Stewart and Deanie Burns to come up here. I hadn't planned on doing this, just ended up doing it in first service. So I'm going to ask those three guys to come back. And I'm going to ask them to read some scripture for you. We did this with the group I pray with in the, the mornings before first service. And these three guys were all there and they kind of set the stage for it. So I decided in first service to give this a shot. We're going to have Matt go first. He's going to read for you the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19. I want you to listen to how he reads this. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Thank you, Matt. Brian's going to read for you the first two verses. Listen to how he reads this. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed to the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Great. Thank you, Brian. Deanie's going to read those same two verses. Listen to how he reads them. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul 
took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, all three of those guys read that passage the same way I did for years and years and years until I started studying this from the realm of the Holy Spirit. And then it hit me like a a wasp on a hot August day. We have to read this with biblical emotion. If we read it like we read every other passage, we will miss the meaning of it. And here's what I mean by that. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That sounds like a casual question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It just sounds like a casual question. But when you begin to read this critically and pick it apart, here's what you discover. The people that he was talking to were all disciples. They were a part of a church that Paul would fall in love with, the church in Ephesus. They had a preacher named Apollos. Apollos began preaching after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and after Pentecost and after the establishment of the New Testament church. He was not a preacher during the time of John the Baptist. He was a preacher during the time of Jesus. He was a preacher during the time of the New Testament church, the same way Paul was. In fact, there are passages of Scripture that will teach us that some people had a little bit of competition between Paul and Apollos. Paul would say, some of you were baptized by Paul and some of you were baptized by Apollos, and that doesn't matter. What matters is that you were baptized into Christ, not who you were baptized by. Apollos was a prominent preacher, but he wasn't introducing them to the Holy Spirit. And when Paul got there, it was the very first thing he noticed. Did you catch that? It's the first thing he noticed. Listen to this. Now, read differently. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you even receive the Spirit when you believed? What was it he was noticing about their life? It was the lack of the Spirit. There was nothing evident. The birthmarks apparently were not there. He couldn't see them. So it led him to say, did did you even receive the Holy Spirit? And then you saw everything that happened afterwards. No, we were baptized with John's baptism, baptism of repentance. That's what Apollos was preaching. Then Paul laid hands on him. They received the Holy Spirit. And there were dramatic signs that they had received the Spirit. But it began with Paul having to say to them, what's going on in your life that it's not obvious What's going on in your life that I can't tell? Did you even receive the Spirit? Because you see, my friends, the birthmarks of the Holy Spirit are evident to those we come in contact with. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, they ought to be the first thing anybody ever notices about you. The birthmarks of that relationship that you have been born again, fueled by the Holy Spirit, cause other people to know who you are. You are a child of God. As the worship team comes, I'm just going to leave you with the same question that Paul approached the church in Ephesus with. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Are the birthmarks visible to other people? That's a question you have to answer. If the answer is no, we would love to introduce you to the Holy Spirit as well. We would love to introduce you to the Trinity, all three persons of the triune Godhead, that you might really know God. So ask yourself that question. Do I know the Spirit? Let's pray together. Go ahead and stand with me and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, questions like this challenge us. They stretch us. and 
I'm thankful for that. Thankful that they exist in the Bible and thankful that they exist in our lives and thankful that your spirit convicts us with them. So I pray that that'll be the case this morning. Convict all of us with that same question. Are the birthmarks of the spirit obvious within us? Lord, help us wonder in the depths of our heart and our mind if people see the spirit when they see us. Help us question for ourselves whether we're living for you or whether we're simply doing life for our own gain. I pray, Father, as we figure that out, that you will show us more and more of who you are every day. In Jesus' name, amen.